Okay, so Helen, there's something I wanted to talk with you about. I realize that I have a glass half full attitude towards most restaurants, but then there's always the one moment when the glass either, you know, fills up or it's half empty. Here in the Eater Upsell Studios, we are joined by Emeril Lagasse, uh, one of the, the titans of American cuisine, I would say, and a huge figure in the city of New Orleans. I'm so excited to meet him. Like, there's nothing else to say. Emeril Lagasse? Emeril Lagasse. The Emeril? Emeril freaking Lagasse. Hit me. All restaurants that go to for the first time, I find that I'm optimistic about them when I enter. That I believe that, yes, there's a chance, there's a good chance that I'm going to enjoy them. That's great. This is terrific news. Like, I mean, isn't this how you're supposed to approach a restaurant? Yes. Do you feel like more often than not you are confirmed in your optimism or you're disappointed? I think more than often, uh, more often than not, I'm disappointed. You say this with like a, a gravity, but maybe it's just that I'm a jaded and horrible person, but it does not really seem to surprise me that most things are terrible. I mean, I, most most things are terrible, right? I mean, like terrible maybe is a heavy word, but... Yeah, most experiences like this are disappointing to some degree, but I'll tell you when I think the moment when you realize that the glass is actually half empty usually comes like, let's say, it's the appetizers. It's the first thing you eat. You know, you can have this, this great idea of what this restaurant's going to be, but that's usually the thing where... It just comes crashing down to reality and you realize the place that you actually are, where you are, you know? This sounds like you're working from some recent experience. Is there, is there anything we need to process? Yeah, right yeah, sure. So this is not super recent, but uh, not too long ago, I decided to go to this restaurant for the first time called Indochine. That is an OG restaurant. Yeah, it's so OG that I used to walk by it every day. We used to work down there and... It's been I open thought, since like the mid 80s. The mid 80s and... It's like the the like Andy Warhol ate there, and it's where all the like French fashion editors eat and have their birthday parties. And like, I I, I know where you're going with this, and I already know what I'm going to say, but I'm really excited to hear about your terrible experience. I'll say that my favorite thing about that restaurant is I read that Graydon Carter, when he was the editor of Spy magazine, every time uh, somebody would ask him for a raise, he would just take them to a three martini lunch at Indochine, and then they would never ask for that raise. They would never go through with it. What happened at that lunch? They would just have such a good time, and then they would feel bad that they were asking their boss for more money. Oh, my God. He emotionally manipulated yeah. them through alcohol and, yeah. and access to power. Yeah. So, anyway. It's such it's, a good management tactic. Uh, it's a really cool, very hip, downtown, late 80s, early 90s kind of spot. My jam. Has really amazing, the best wall, some of the best wallpaper Giant I've ever seen. green palm fronds. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, definitely... Gorgeous people working there, eating there. Uh, Doing coke in the bathroom. Maybe. Uh, it looked like the people that were eating there have been eating there for 30 years, but they still look really good kind like, of thing. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Like the the kind of I lived in Soho before it was cool and all I consume is champagne and powdered substances. Kind yeah. Of folks. And they yeah. seem really comfortable. Like like asymmetrical shoes, people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, feeling exactly. it. So... Having a great time, having a great meal, and the the menu is basically Vietnamese 
sort of. It's sort of Pan-Asian a little bit. As, Vietnamese. as the name would imply, Indochina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... You know, first bite of whatever that first dish is, you just realize that, man, this is just not competing with the rest of the Vietnamese food or Asian food in New York right now. I feel like the thinness and hipness of your fellow patrons could have clued you into the fact that the food was not the draw at this place. Right. Like, maybe this was your first mistake. Yep. Yeah, that's it. So... You know, maybe it's just a restaurant, but the thing is that I believe that its reputation was more than just a a cool place. It was actually like, yeah, the food was cool. It was a cool place to go and eat, you know? Yeah. And I think that things have maybe stayed the same there. It's just that the food's gotten better. Elsewhere. Elsewhere. Yeah. I think that's true. I think I think that like the overall level of food quality at restaurants everywhere has gone up. Like this is, you know, for all of the infinite upsides and infinite downsides of the sort of juggernaut-ish rise of food culture over the last decade and a half, like the thing that is actually like material and fantastic is that food is freaking great. Like you don't have to go too far to find someone who gives a shit. Restaurants used to be this very like banquet-oriented kind of thing, you know, and it was like all about the scene or it was all about turning a profit or like turning as many covers as possible and like still everyone you know wants to make a profit it's a business but there's an actual love for the product and there's like an artistry and so places that have been around for forever that have not necessarily cottoned on to the fact that the food now counts as much as the rest of the room kind of feel a little archaic a hundred percent and so that was the end i agree with you a hundred percent right there and so that was the that was the moment where the glass was actually half empty and now for the rest of the meal I kind of couldn't ignore that, you know, but it's the same kind of thing. It's like you basically have to choose what you what you want to feel about a restaurant at a certain point. Yeah. You make a decision to be happy. Yeah. Or no, maybe that makes it sound like the burden is on you. Like, I think there's like this complicated like body language communication between like the physical object of the restaurant and you as a diner and like it's on them to kind of communicate like you walk into certain kinds of places and like you know distressed wood and edison bulbs and you know that like there's probably going to be like a lamb burger on the menu like there's something about the decor that that tells you what kind of food you're going to get and maybe they didn't properly communicate to you that like the kind of food you were going to get was not the kind of food that you're meant to actually consume I see what you're saying. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. most things can be solved by clear communication. And, right. And they should have maybe said, like, you know, welcome, Mr. Morbido. Your table is right this way. And a, a quick reminder that the point of being here is getting drunk and being paparazzi in the 80s by Ron Galella, <laughs> not eating dinner. Right. But you never know what it's going to be like until you actually try it and make up your own decisions about it. Because people are wrong sometimes. You, you know? have to live and learn. I was wrong. I was wrong about Budokan, our very first episode of the Eater Upsell. Faithful listeners will know that I, I went I went to the decks about Budokan being a great restaurant and I was horribly, horribly, brutally wrong and I apologize to everyone. I, I wound up visiting it a couple weeks ago with Ryan Sutton um, while he was writing or while he was making one of his, his review visits. Yeah, he and did no like it. He did not like it and and it was really bad and I, I felt both disappointed in my dining experience and also like I have done a, a great disservice to everybody who has been turning to these little segments on the eater upsell for my gospel-like advice on good restaurants <laughs> uh, yeah you know sometimes places are just really bad well this brings up another issue that I think is actually 
more important to me, it gets more important to me as we keep working, talking about these sort of things and keep working with restaurants and writing about them and stuff. It's like, it's just really important to go to these places. It's really important to check up on them. Mm -hmm. It's really important to go to places that you don't think you'll like because you might learn something. You might learn that they're good. You might learn that you like them. Or that they're good for an audience that isn't you, too. Right. And that's good to know about. I mean, I think there's a certain moral relativism that you can apply to restaurants. Like, there are, there are things I personally am looking for, um, but I also don't think that what I'm looking for is what everyone is looking for. Like, I, I'm old and cranky and, like, don't like loud noises and I like to go to sleep. I mean, like, I have my own, like, stupid shit. And there are places that make a lot of people really, really happy and I shouldn't impose my weird limitation onto it Mm -hmm. not that everywhere has something going for it there are definitely places that are just like bad like capital b capital a capital d bad and they stay open somehow forever Mm -hmm. infinitely i think those are the places that cater to tourists yeah or some or something a transient or like they're not real restaurants they're fronts for some horrible organized crime or like oh yeah that now that is a genre i am very interested in is like the we actually are hitmen who run a front of a restaurant to make it look like we're not going to murder you. Yeah, or, or like we're the worst restaurant in the world because actually somebody's laundering money through here. It's a great operation, man. Like if you're going to launder money, a restaurant, as many, many movies that I've seen have proven, a, a restaurant is the way to go. Mm-hmm. I feel like I know a lot about how to run the mafia from seeing movies about restaurants. Would be the ultimate map on any eater site, actually. Where the food doesn't matter. Yeah, 15 restaurants that are just fronts for money laundering. I think we'd be murdered if we ran that. <laughs> we would right. suddenly disappear. <laughs> yeah. Some like Or the restaurants would disappear. Um, one or the other, yeah. I, I don't know if I want to take that risk. You don't want to take that risk, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to take that risk. Greg, I, I need you to be part of this This. <laughs> podcast operation with me you cannot put yourself into the line of potential mafia murders for the sake of traffic fair enough I'm, i'm laying down the law welcome to the uh the studios thank you i'm delighted to be here thanks so much for having us and what do we have right here this is i in front of me i have a copy of of emerald's upcoming cookbook yes essential emerald which comes out October 6th, right? That's right. And this is your, what, 18th cookbook? I, 19th? I, I lost count. I started counting. Some, somewhere around that neighborhood. I like had to do like the third hand, and then I was in the fourth hand, and I was right. like, oh my. So, so how, do you, how do you keep the juices flowing? Well, I haven't written a book in, in quite a few years now. Um, so this one here is um, it's very special. Um, it's not really a memoir, but it's about as, as probably as close to one as... Uh, as you will get uh, for me, particularly. Uh, every recipe in the book is, uh, is extremely special. Um, they all have a, a meaning, so they either have a story or an influence or uh, technique-driven. And I think that the book uh, Essential Emerald is, um, is just that. It's, um, you know, a journey for probably 30 years of... Uh, where I've been, who has influenced me along the way. So there's some, there's quite a quite a bit in, inside of that book. Uh, beside a, a lot of, a lot of technique driven. So um, you know, from from peeling to how to make a roux to lots of lots of technique. It was very important for me 
to share that um, uh, with hopefully a lot of readers that uh, are going to come on to this. So that's uh, that's that's really you know that's that's really every recipe in there is 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 very special. So it could be a childhood memory, or it could be a New Orleans memory, or it could be the journey, you know, being influenced by Mr. Verger or by Julia Child, et cetera, et cetera. So it's there's a lot there's a lot in there. Well, your journey has been um, somewhat geographically peripatetic. You were born in Massachusetts, right? Correct. And and you're this titan of New Orleans cooking, but. Massachusetts has its own very distinct culinary style yes. and, and that whole area of New England. Yeah. There's a, there's one of the dishes inside of the book is uh, what I call Fall River Chow Mein. So, um, you know, Fall River is not necessarily known for Chinese cuisine, more for Portuguese uh, cuisine and uh, its its people and culture. But there's a, a place uh, that influenced me growing up. And, you know, in my travels, I've never had chow mein anywhere like it before it's a it has its own very distinction uh this particular chinese food in, in fall river what's it like it, yeah. yeah it's uh it's and it's very different than boston um it's it's it th- this particular one uh has has pork and celery et cetera, et cetera, and the noodles from scratch and and it was um, a place that I would go to as a child and was a big influence. And so that's exactly what Essential Emerald really is, is like all of those stories and, and people and places that have really influenced me along the way. Wow. So as a kid, were you someone who wanted to be a chef? Did you want to grow up and do that or did that kind of come a little bit later in life? Yeah, no, I was about um, 10 years old when I uh, really started getting into cooking. I also had a music background, so uh, it... it turned out to be in high school that I turned down a scholarship to music school to pay to go to cooking school. What, so was, your, what was your Percussion. Experience? Percussion major. Is this where BAM came from? No. No, BAM <laughs> was after that. Um, I mean, it's a very percussive noise. Yeah, BAM was after that. BAM was, uh, but pr- probably certainly driven by percussion. There's something in your head sure. that exactly. like, stuck that in there. So you played drums? Yes. Uh, like I rock, played rock a lot, drumming? I played a lot of instruments, but mm-hmm. uh, percussion was my, my major. Were you like rock drumming or like? Uh, or I like... played classic music. I played rock and roll. I played jazz. I played really just a, a bit of everything. Were you in any bands? I was. <laughs> Did you guys make it? Like, were you good? Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, guess I thought we were pretty good. Yeah. Is any band full of high schoolers ever really good? <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I played it quite seriously. So I toured a little bit in, um, mostly in, in the northern part of the United States and Canada. Um, so that's a, it's another life. Yeah. So you turned down. Well, my mom was a big influence. So I, I think my first dish, um, was probably when I was seven, we had a, we had a vegetable garden and my first dish that I learned how to make was vegetable soup with my mom on a stool. And, um, you know, God willing, she's, you know, she's still alive and we still talk food, uh, as often as we can. But that, that was probably the first influence of, uh, of of cooking was with her. So how do you get from Massachusetts? And, and you went to culinary school at, at Johnson & Wales, right? In yes, Rhode in Island. Right. So how do, how do you get from from like like core New England down to mm-hmm. New Orleans? What's that path? Well, I am fortunate I was American schooled, but I was classically trained. So had a lot of influences. And I was working mostly in the New England area. Uh, anywhere from New York to, to sort of to Maine, while I was going to school and, and sort of after school. I I then joined um, 
uh, a very interesting um, hotel company called Dumphy Hotels, which is now Omni. And but I wasn't really so much a hotel guy as I was the restaurant guy, right? So, you know, they really brought me in to sort of do the the restaurant part of of things. So I had some great mentors along the way there and lived in New York City for a bit. And uh, that's where I met Wolfgang Puck, and who was uh, probably my first influence um, on a serious basis. Where'd you live in New York when you lived here? I lived in Queens, actually. Oh, yeah. Couldn't afford to live in Manhattan. <laughs> um, took the train. You know, it was one of those journeys. Great experience. Did you work with Puck at a restaurant I here? did. Which restaurant was that? Well, he was at Mamaison, uh-huh. and uh, uh, Dunphy Hotels had hired the folks, Patrick Terrell and Wolfgang, from Mamaison to open a hotel project here called, um, it was on 50, it's now the Omni, yeah. uh, right? Mm-hmm. So but it wasn't Omni then, it was Dunphy Hotel. So they had a restaurant, sort of like a seasons concept that they hired me and brought me in for. And Wolfgang sort of oversaw the, you know, the restaurant project and, and then slowly moved up to sous chef. It was very hard getting a job then, uh, you know, in the 70s in New York because um, there weren't really any American cooks. They were all, you know, either German or, you know, French, et cetera. So, Continental was still yeah, was the very, thing, right? right? It was so. very difficult. So anyhow, Wolfgang, um, we worked together and... To answer your question, I had met a person that was very, very close to the Brennan family. And in 1982, they were actually looking to bring on a new chef in New Orleans to take over Paul Prudhomme's slot. Paul had just opened K. Paul's with his wife, Kay, and was still on, but was also like still at Commander's. And so I interviewed for the job, which was quite an experience, just the interview itself. Really? What was that And like? um, it was long. It was <laughs> months, you know. They were very thorough and very particular about what they what they wanted and what who they wanted to have. I mean, this restaurant has a legacy that goes back yeah. like a century or something, Yeah, right? amazing. So in 1982, I took over the chef's job there. I moved to New Orleans, took over Commander's Palace. Later, beside the chef, I was also the general manager of the restaurant. So I ran the restaurant from the kitchen which is very, very unusual. It's like directing your own music video. Yep. And then um, really had such an experience with the Brennan family. As Greg knows, it's a legendary in the city of New Orleans, the restaurant, the family. And um, I fell in love with New Orleans. And Ella and I were going to open a restaurant together. Uh, she wanted to be in the French Quarter. Ah, uh, demographics, right? And I wanted to pioneer the warehouse district, which is where I was, which is where I was living. And they thought I was absolutely crazy because there was no street lights. Very few people lived in the warehouse district at the time, and I just kind of fell in love with this particular space, which is where Emeralds is. And so uh, Emeralds now is uh, 25 years old, uh, soon to be 26, God willing. And that was the beginning of the journey. Opened Emeralds and wanted it to be a white tablecloth restaurant for New Orleanians. And I figured that if I could make a restaurant that New Orleanians loved, then I would have a shot at, uh, at you know, being successful. And so uh, here we are. Do you remember? In your studio. Yeah, I'll let right here. Do you remember the, the moment that, um, that the flavors of, of Cajun and Creole and New Orleans style cooking sort of presented themselves to you? Well, I was sort of uh, labeled when I was at Commander's, uh, sort of doing new New Orleans cooking. 
So, you know, part of my journey, which is also a, a part of Essential Emerald, was I never disrespected tradition. I embraced it. I learned a long time ago that if you, you know, to understand cuisine, it's very, it, it's not magical. You have to understand, first of all, you have to understand the people. You have to understand the culture. And if you can understand the people and the culture, then you can understand the food. And so on my time off, I would travel into the country and learn from farmers, fishermen, etc., and embraced it. And so my style became a little bit of Acadian, uh, which is what my dad's background is. My dad's French-Canadian, and uh, my mom's Portuguese. So I'll never forget when I, my very first time when I uh, interviewed at Commander's, I was walking through the kitchen with Ella. She met me outside, and we're walking through the kitchen. You have to walk through the kitchen to go to the bar at Commander's Palace. And, and she said, what do you think about all this great smells? And what do you think about all this? And I said, it smells just like my mom's kitchen. <laughs> and so the journey began. Yeah, everything is memory. Yeah. That's really amazing. So, you know, uh, in Louisiana, there are basically two styles, right? So there's Creole and there's Cajun, which, you know, is a slang word for Acadian. So one is the country and one is the city. Uh, influenced by the French and the Spanish and African-American cultures and ingredients. And so totally embraced that and then began building on that. So, you know, I began by working on a farm cooperative and I began, basically my philosophy was strictly to go from scratch. So everything that we did at Commander's Palace was basically, when I took over, was from scratch. And then, you know, and then one day the light bulb went off and and I said to myself, why are you doing this, Emerald? Why, why are you doing, uh, besides trying to make your reputation for yourself, why? And then it became apparent to me that it was the memories from my childhood. It was memories of that vegetable garden that we talked about earlier. It was uh, influence uh, from a farm that my dad and uncle had where they raised hogs and they had chickens. And, and so all of these little memories started, you know, why was I making goat cheese from scratch in 1983, 84? Nobody made goat cheese from scratch. Laura Chanel wasn't even on the marketplace yet. If she was, it was very, very small. And so that was what my philosophy was, was to, to do a from scratch production at Commander's to get a better reputation than what the restaurant already had, but a reputation also for my, myself as a, as a chef. Was there ever a moment where you felt like you did it? Like where you sort of looked around and you were like, okay, I'm here, the success happened, um, or I, I did it for myself? You know, uh, it's 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 kind of one of those things that you know. Here's you know this all these years later, I'm still doing the same thing. You know, I'm still trying to perfect. I'm still trying to learn. I'm still trying to grow, and I'm still you know mentoring. Either have a mentor or mentoring. I I I'd like to think that that's happening. And so, um, you know, it's it's kind of always like let's get up and let's try a little bit harder than we did the day before. Yeah. Wow. So. 25 years of emeralds that's i mean that's huge for restaurant years that's a that's a definite landmark there emeralds is not like a it's not like a retro act it's not like you're necessarily playing all your old hits there i mean the restaurants evolved i'm just kind of curious as your group has evolved you know how do you how do you stay contemporary what do you what do you do how do you how do you make changes well i, I think a lot of that is um being worldly i, I think reading is important 
I think being connected is important to the environment. You know, I'm certainly still feel very much attached to the soil. So that's a big part of my, you know, what, what works for me. Most of my chefs and managers and general managers, et cetera, have been with me pretty much from day one for the most part. But, you know, not being stagnant is, is the challenge, you know, so you have to be current. And we constantly just talk about food. Uh, we talk about ingredients. And so now, for me, if you have great ingredients, you have great cuisine. It doesn't mean that you have to do crazy things to it and, and you know, dry it and freeze dry it and undry it. And it's just a matter of having delicious food. And so we're constantly looking for that all the time, uh, whether it's in Las Vegas or in New Orleans. I mean, you know, the fish house in, in Las Vegas is an example. It's been there 21 years. There are not a lot of people that can say that, first of all, they've been in Vegas for 21 years, but who has a restaurant 21 years, you know, in the middle of the desert? And when I told them that I was going to do a seafood restaurant in the middle of the desert 22 years ago, they thought I was absolutely crazy. Like, how are you going to do a seafood restaurant in the middle of the desert? It's totally stacking the odds against you. Right. <laughs> but then 21 years later, right. you're beating everything. I would imagine you paved the way for a lot of other restaurateurs to open out there. I mean, to have a concept like that. You well, know? you know, it was certainly, when I went there 22 years ago, it was certainly the land of uh, good luck. You know, <laughs> thank you, you know. And, uh, and a good buffet, if that existed. There were very, very few... Um, First of all, there were very few fine dining restaurants, Mine restaurants in general, that weren't a buffet or weren't run by the hotel with that attitude, like, good luck, okay? Like, we're playing cards again today. So there was Wolfgang. um, There was Mark Miller. uh, He had a a branch of Coyote Cafe in the MGM. Um, There was Charlie Trotter, uh, who, by the way, I dedicated the book to, to Charlie Trotter, the, the late Charlie Trotter, my dear friend. So there are very few dining experiences out there other than, you know, the buffet. And so Emerald's New Orleans Fish House, it it sounded uh, perfectly fine with me. The challenge was certainly there. But, you know, we were bringing fish in from, from Louisiana. We were bringing fish in from the West Coast. We were bringing in fish a little bit from Hawaii. And then all of a sudden, things started really changing. Now, because, it, you know, not, now Las Vegas is like New York City. You can get anything that you want basically any time of the day. There's produce trucks that, you know, come four or five days, uh, four or five times a day from Los Angeles. The fish, the, it, it's it's amazing. It's switched in, I mean, I think the, the money hasn't switched, but like the perception of Vegas has switched from a gambling town to a dining town. Yes. I mean, people go there it's unbelievable. to eat. Yes. It's a remarkable Yeah, like people would go there for the weekend to gamble, and now people go for the weekend to dine. Yeah. You know, to really, there are just amazing restaurants everywhere, not just like in one particular hotel, but, and, and from all over the world. So you can get, you know, Emerald, you can get Joe Robichon, you can get, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. It's just really has turned into be just an, an amazing dining town. Yeah, I think town. in terms of the concentration of quality, I can't, I mean, I, I'm like an, an, I love Las Vegas. I think yeah. it's, it's terrific. Well, I have to say that I think, um, at least, I'm, you know, my opinion is that it really kind of started at the MGM because, uh, and it was, it started by a guy by the name of Danny Wade and um, who was the general manager at the time. And what he figured out and convinced the ownership Mr. Kikorian, uh, 
at the MGM was that, you know what, they really are special. They really know how to do a bullfight for 5,000 people, a rock concert for 8,000 people. But what they really didn't know is that they really didn't know how to run fine dining restaurants. And so they really weren't good at it. And so he's the guy that really saw, you know what? So what we're going to do is we're going to find people like Emeril, uh, Mark Miller, Charlie Trotter, uh, Wolfgang Puck, etc. We're going to find people that know how to run restaurants and let them run the restaurant. And we'll we'll run the 5,000-room hotel and put on the convention business, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't really... We don't really know how to operate a fine dining restaurant. That takes a lot of bigness, I think, to yes. be able to admit that. And then from there, it moved. And there was a guy by the name of Lou Silvestri who was sort of the the arms and legs of making that work. And then when they announced that they were going to open the Venetian Hotel on the Strip, uh, they hired Lou Silvestri. And so Lou Silvestri became the arms for another gentleman by the name of Rob Goldstein who had the vision of what the hotel restaurant should be. And so they immediately together went outside and had Emeril, and then they went and got Joachim, and then they went and got Wolfgang, and then they went and got Mario Batali, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so now it's like if you look at just the dining between the Venetian and Palazzo of what's happening just on that property right there, it's mind-blowing. It's murderer's row. It's yeah. I mean, yeah, no, that's where Bouchon is in yes. Venetian. It's where... It's, it's where mm-hmm. um, Patali's Steakhouses. It's yep. it's remarkable. It's crazy. Have you been to Vegas, Greg? Not <laughs> not not in the last fifteen years. I think we lost them. I know for a you and I were having no such a no. Moment. This is fascinating. <laughs> I, I went I went when I was in um, when I was a college student and had like ate at Fat Burger and you know. I think going as a college student, like you're looking for a different thing. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't it was it wasn't Emerald's Fish House when I was there. Right. This sounds this sounds amazing. I I, I must oh, I is. must go. It is. It it is. I mean, and I think I think there's there are ways that people will sort of like flippantly say, Oh yeah, Vegas is great and there are ways that people will like very ironically be like, Oh yeah, Vegas is great. But genuinely, with absolute mm-hmm. sincerity, I think that the food in Las Vegas, both on the strip in the casinos and also in the in the city as a whole, is underrated and underappreciated. Yeah. It's it's such a fantastically interesting yep. food and, city. And, and wine and spirits and mixology and you name it. It's like it's the top. I mean, it really is. It's like it's going on there. Uh, there's no place like Las Vegas. The one thing it isn't is environmentally sustainable. <laughs> but, well, you know, you got to make some accommodations. Right. Uh, you know, who doesn't like being in 115 degrees where you can <laughs> yeah. fry an egg on a bumper totally. of a car? You can't really be a locavore in the middle of the Nevada right. desert. So you stay inside. So what I'm curious about is you have, uh, what is it now, 13 restaurants in the United I'm States? building the 13th. You're building the 13th. So what is your hope. what is your process when you, you know, say you're in Las Vegas or say you're in... Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, or, you know, wherever you have a, a city that's not your home port and you're visiting your restaurant, what's your process there when you're checking up? Are you eating? Are you cooking? Both. Are you, yeah. Both. You know, it's, it's really, um, you know, I think what makes a successful restaurant tour is being a good listener. So I think I'm a really good listener. You know, my ears down to the concrete all the time. You know, I'm really doing things that the customer wants. It's not so much what I want, it's so much what the customer wants. So, you know, I think that uh, being a great restaurateur is really being able to listen and to, to understand that. Beside having talent, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously you have to cook. Right. 
You have to know how to run a restaurant and service, et cetera, et cetera. But being a listener is very important. It's the line between good and great. Yeah. I think in almost every industry. But especially if you're if you have if you have establishments as far flung as you do. So is this this has always been something it seems sounds like it's been a part of your interest, like even back to the commander's days, that you wanted to you were the general manager. Is that something you've always wanted to do? You've always wanted to understand how restaurants operate? No, I, I didn't I didn't take the job for thinking that I was going to be the general manager. It just so, sort of happened that it was the next challenge. Did it so, change how you cooked? No, I, I ran the kitchen from the, you know, I ran the restaurant from the kitchen, um, always in whites, you know, but um, extremely involved. And I had a very good mentor there. I had, you know, I mean, I worked for Ella Brennan. I worked for Dick Brennan. I mean, that doesn't get any better than than that yeah. uh, as restaurateurs. Oh, that's, the, the legacy of that restaurant is extraordinary. Speaking of legacies and Wolfgang Pup and like everything, I feel like we've all, we've, we've been sort of centering, we've been like whirling around onto the next thing I'm going to ask you, which is like you basically created television food celebrity or you are one of several people who laid the foundation for what is now this like behemothic multiple tentacled octopus of celebrity chef culture. And what what do you what do you think? Like what is what is it like looking at the world today versus the world that you helped create? Well, I mean, I grew up watching Julia Child, um, so she was like the person that I watched and became my one of my mentors, right? And then I had an opportunity to uh, to start the Food Network twenty one years ago. You know, I did it because I when when they called me and approached me to be on the Food Network, first of all, it was sort of like a dream because it's like, okay, you know, you're talking about there's going to be a network that's going to be about cooking and shopping and wine and. 24 hours a day come on that's that's like impossible and it's weird to think that there was a time when that was impossible because yeah. now it feels like everything is yeah. food all the time before that you were on great chefs right i i did i uh participated in great chefs of uh, new orleans um so but that i i really didn't understand television you know when i started the food network i really didn't understand actually i got fired a few times first just because I didn't, you know, I was a cook. I mean, I had my head down and, you know, I wasn't really looking at anything. And then and then basically after I got fired a couple of times, then it became obvious to me that, you know what, Emerald, maybe you should just treat this like you're doing a cooking demonstration and that you, 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 you're teaching people something, you know, about cooking. And so when I applied that to what I was doing, then it, it started connecting because then I started connecting with people. So it was a great, it's been a great, great ride. I'm still doing television. I'm, I'm doing a show right now for the cooking channel called Emeralds Florida, which is in its fourth season. I've been involved with Top Chef and uh, getting ready to shoot the finale of that in a couple of weeks. I've got a new show that I'm uh, getting ready. I haven't started production yet, but I've got another show that I'm called Eat the World. Oh, that's a good name. Uh, yeah. So I, I enjoy writing. I, I don't do it because I'm trying to have a collection of, of books, you know, or oh, this is number 17 or whatever, I, I enjoy. There's a reason why I did that, right? And so there's a reason why I do television because I, I, I like connecting. Yeah. You know, there's, there's been a spate of news stories recently about a, a shortage of cooks. There was a piece in the Washington Post a month or so ago, and there, there have been a number of chefs, I think, like sort of weighing in on this on, on Twitter, saying that they're having a really hard time finding entry-level and mid-level folks to come work in their kitchens. And the consensus seems to be settling on the idea that people are getting into 
cooking now, not because they love cooking, but because they want to be famous. Yeah, they want to be on TV. So what, what's the solution to this? Well, uh, you know, I'm involved in a lot of different level, a lot of aspects of, of culinary education from college to high school. My foundation actually has built a high school uh, program at NOCA in New Orleans. So I, I look at it from a very different perspective. I, I, I want to be with people that want to be in the business, not so much that want to be on TV or want to be famous or, you know, their face on a box. So, you know, I'm constantly looking for people that want to cook, you know. Can you tell right away if someone's in it for the wrong reasons? Pretty much. Um, you got to have passion. This is a crazy business. I mean, you got to really love what you're doing. Uh, and so that's the first thing that I tell people is that you really got to understand and know what you're getting into because this is not your typical, like, nine-to-five job. Uh, and you have to love it. You got to be able to find the beauty in, in peeling 40 pounds of onions. Exactly. On a somewhat different but slightly related note, <laughs> do you think that just people outside of professional kitchens, America, do you think that they're cooking and eating at home in yes. a different way than when you... Yes. Yeah. No question about it. What's the, what's the big difference? I, I, I think that um, America has evolved um, in all different aspects of the food business, but particularly at home. I mean, look at how grocery stores are today. Wine, spirits. It's, it is really incredible to see where it was and where it is. And encouraging to see possibly where it could go. Because people are excited about, about cooking, about eating. You know, there are, you know, there's some people that eat to live. And then there's some people that live to eat, right? So, you know, who are you? I kind of think that... There's a bit of both, but basically I, I'm really living to eat, right? Yeah. I think people are, are starting to f realize that you can take pleasure in something that you have to do multiple times a day. So why not like yes. dig in on that pleasure? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean you have to be like crazy, like, you know, like drive yourself insane to have to cook every day. But, you know, keep it, keep it real. Keep it simple. That's what I tell people. You know, it's like building a house. You have to have a solid foundation in order for it to, to, to continue to grow. So that's like cooking. You know, have a solid foundation and then and then grow grow on that. You know, that way you can have more than just one level. You can have a second level, a third level. You can go up 90 stories. And one of those levels is the TV show and one of them is the other TV show. And then there's the 13 restaurants and the 18 books and the building Vegas from the ground up. And the, you know, you too can be Emerald. Just build a solid foundation. That's right. <laughs> with, with the TV, with the TV stuff, do you ever find uh, you know younger chefs that are maybe dipping their toes into it? Do they ever ask you for, like for advice? Well, that's what's great about Emeralds, Florida, because we're discovering. Not only are we discovering the state of Florida, which, by the way, is amazing, from the Keys all the way to the Panhandle. You know, I I got a little bit involved with the show because um, people think that you know Florida, or people did think Florida was basically a bunch of golf courses and people that are retiring. And that's not the case. It's a it's a an, an incredible state with great agriculture, with fishing. We're sort of blessed between having the Gulf on one side and the Atlantic Ocean on the other side. Both are very different by the way. You, you know, like I said, the agriculture, it's more than citrus. It's it's amazing. Amazing, amazing the things that I found. So to uh, answer your question, yes. 
there are a lot of not only in Florida, but there are a lot of lot of great food happening because of these young people who are into cooking that really want to cook, he or she. And so it's wonderful to see. I, I think now we have more great restaurants in America than ever. So getting back to what you were saying about supply and demand, yeah. right? You know, we have to keep we have to keep mentoring and we have to keep turning out good good students. Whether they go to culinary school or whether they just come and do an, an apprenticeship or an internship at the restaurant, you have to really take the time to to say, okay, look, you know, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Well, I think culinary school has also wound up becoming part of this argument about supply and demand too, because I think there's the subtext or sometimes the supertext, they just come right out and say it, for chefs who are saying that, that folks are coming in just wanting to be TV celebrities. Those are usually the kids who are coming in out of culinary school where they've never had the hands-on restaurant experience and they've never actually been on the line except for like the one week of culinary school where they're working in the model restaurant. Yeah, bad. And there's a big backlash, I think, right now against culinary school. They're saying yeah. just like, go be a dishwasher, be like, the, you know, the- Well, that's why they're trying to have more internships and longer internships. It's like, you know, I'm not going to say what, what culinary institution, okay, but so, okay, so you ask me to take an intern and you're going to give me six weeks. I, how, what can you do in six weeks? You know, it's like running the country in six weeks. It, it's impossible, you know. So what I, what I say is give me more time, you know, six months maybe instead of six, six weeks. But then there's a, there's a result uh, if, you, if you can give me the time. So when people really come to work with us in our restaurants, it's basically that's really, that's really the philosophy. It's just like, look. If you want to be famous, you're in the wrong place. If you want to learn how to cook, if you want to learn how to be a, a restaurateur, then you're in the right place. I can teach really anybody how to cook. They got to have the passion. They got to have the desire to want to learn how to cook. And if they have that, then it's much easier for me to teach them than pulling them up the mountain. Wow. Who are some of the teachers that you feel like you learned from? Well, a lot of them are in Essential Emerald. So there's anybody from uh, Roger Verger to Julia Child to Freddie Juriday to Mario Batali to Charlie Trotter to Roy Choi. You know, I got to ask, Greg and I were looking in the office the other day. Um, Sammy Hagar has got a new cookbook out and you yeah, appear gonna, very prominently in this cookbook. I'm going to be with him I, are, later. Really? Today? Tomorrow. Oh my God. Are you yes. guys hanging out in New York? Can I come? No, he and I are going to do the Rachel Ray show tomorrow. Oh, that's going to be so cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're you're like threaded throughout this and it's a it's a surprisingly great, I don't know why I said surprise. It's a great cookbook. Sammy's a good cook. A, yeah. And, and the recipes are, are very real and he, he talks about hanging out with you and taking inspiration from you and, and you bringing, was it white truffles to his wedding? Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is an extraordinary story. Did he know? So you just showed up at his wedding with like 10 pounds of white truffle? So he he um, asked me if I would do his wedding for Kari and, and, and him uh, in Mill Valley. And so we had a bunch of wine people too that were a part of that celebration. And it wasn't any fancy, fancy, smancy place. It was very family driven. And on several occasions, I had the pleasure, of course, for cooking for, for them. And truffles was one of the things that they absolutely loved and cherished. And it happened to be the time of the year that they, the wedding was. It was truffle season. And so I bought a paper bag, maybe of about, I don't know, maybe 10 pounds, you might be right, of truffles to oh the wedding. And, 
And it was a kingly uh, gift. Yeah, and um, we we had a lot of dishes uh, with truffle and uh, in celebration. It was a, it was really a, a wonderful celebration. You made it rain, huh? Yeah. No confetti at this wedding. No rice. Just, just yeah. white truffle shavings That's everywhere. Right. Exactly. It must have smelled so good. And so it did. It did. And uh, I remember setting off the alarm, the fire alarm. With the truffles? One of the courses. No, not the <laughs> truffle course. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure I remember what, what course it was, but I do remember setting off the alarm. Uh, it was a very sensitive little thing. That feels very on brand for a Sammy Hagar wedding, you know? Like, I feel like. To set the alarm off? Yeah, and I feel like, you know, like a, a little bit of controlled chaos feels like what I would expect. There was a lot of controlled chaos, actually. There. <laughs> so, on the subject of famous chefs, I guess I never realized that you and Wolfgang Puck ever worked together, especially in New York in the 70s. And that kind of blows my mind because I think that. You two really created a lot of this, the, the you know, kind of big, famous chef culture that's the out there. Right we're now. swimming in. Wolf is a, he's an extraordinary human being. You he guys still keep in touch? Extremely talented. Um, he's still a mentor. Um, he's very gifted. But he's gifted in more than just cooking because he, he has a true gift when it comes to people. And I think that that's another quality of being a successful restaurateur is having, having that, that, that touch with people. See, I understand people because I don't ask people to do anything that I wouldn't do. So if, like, if it's a, a matter of picking up a piece of paper on the floor and I asked you to pick up the piece of paper on the floor, it doesn't mean that I'm asking you because I wouldn't do it. So um, I use that approach, and, and it seems to have worked. Um, the other thing is, is that I, I think it's really you're cheating yourself if you if you don't learn something every day in our business. If you're if you're not learning something today, you're really cheating yourself because there's too much to know. There's so much depth of knowledge that is there in cuisine because just when you think you've mastered something, it, it, it it's impossible. You'll never. I've never learned. I've never seen and met a person ever. That and I've met a lot of people around the world um, who has mastered cooking, who has mastered cuisine. It's just like I'm it's done. It's just too much. Did it? It's too much. Because just when you think that you are uh, are a good Greek cook, then how about learning about Portuguese cuisine or Asian or what what part of Asia? Uh, Korean or Chinese? And then what of the five Chinese cultures do you want to try to master? Is it Szechuan or what? What? It's too much. You can drill down forever. Yes. There's so much. You never stop. So, Emeril, it's time for the show that we like to call the lightning round. Okay. This is nothing to be, well, it's something to be a little bit afraid of. Don't be too afraid. No. Um, You're in good hands. Yeah, we're just going to ask you some questions. We ask all the chefs these questions and just say the first thing that comes to your head. So, if you walk into a bar that you've never been to before, what is the drink that you order? Well, my curiosity would be um, what kind of beer, especially in today's time, is on tap. So I, I'm I'm very I'm a kind of a regional guy. I want to be like I want to tap into what's what's happening locally. No pun intended. Right. Whether it's <laughs> whether it's beer or wine. So, you know, vodka's vodka, right? So I mean, you can get that pretty much anywhere you want. So I, I'm kind of curious about the. Wine program, if there is any, and certainly the beer program. What are some of your favorite like regional beers? Um, 
they change no matter you know where you are. You know, San Diego is much different than San Francisco, and Brooklyn is much different than New Orleans. So it's it's really you know, uh, there's certainly uh, styles that are you know uh, you know an IPA versus a lager, uh, something dark versus something lighter. I'm a big Abita fan uh, in in New Orleans. Uh, I think those guys are doing some amazing things. But uh, when I'm here in New York, I, I, I go local. It's very admirable. I like that style. But so so I feel the same way about cuisine. Yeah. So I'm inspired more about the weather and the soil than I am about and seasonality than I am about. I, I don't I don't want to eat tomatoes in January. Right. You want to be where you are when you are. Yes. So say you're at an airport and you have, you know, money in your back pocket, you got some time to kill. What's your vice? What do you what do you do? What do you spend your money on? Well, it's interesting that you say that because the air- airport life now is changing a lot. So these guys like uh companies like uh HMS and these guys that are running these food service organizations, they have changed. I recently have been in some meetings with them, just philosophy meetings about, you know, where where the future of cuisine is in an airport, because it's, it's if you if you notice, uh, let's let's just start here at JFK, right, or LaGuardia. It's amazing what has happened in airports now. So I have had some amazing meals just recently in in airports, more domestically than internationally. Internationally, I think that there's still well, you know, not like in London or you know, not in places like that, but Paris, mm. but but domestically. I don't know the last time if uh, if you've been in a Dallas airport as an example because that's a hub for you know in Louisiana that that's a good place that you're going to land to get somewhere. It's amazing what 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 has happened. Los Angeles. I just had a recently I just had a, a meal in, in Los Angeles at one of the airport restaurants that, and you know the service now they're concentrating on that and certainly the quality. So you know I I I, I look at I look around. I look around. Maybe Cat Cora has a restaurant. Maybe uh, Tyler Florence Wolfgang obviously has been doing it for a long it's time. Is redoing it? Yes, airports, right. Yeah. But it really is truly amazing what's what's going on domestically in airports. You know that reminds me of I I, I committed this like journalistic sin I, that I shouldn't even admit to, but um, I, I was reading your Wikipedia page, and it contains one of the best category subheaders I've ever seen on a chef's page ever, which is contributions to the. Sp- to space exploration. Yes. So like you have not only worked with airlines and airports, you've also worked with NASA. Yes. Which is amazing. You've contributed to, to space the, exploration. My food's, been, my food's been to the moon. That's incredible. And, I, and I've and i actually had the pleasure of talking to them while they were eating my food. What? Via satellite. What was yes. that like? Amazing. How does it feel to know that they ate your food That is moon? like the pinnacle. That's, amazing. that's the top that's, of that's Chef it. Mountain right like, there. Like we're done. There, nobody else can accomplish anything. That's, I mean, it's the coolest thing. It was really thing cool. What did you prepare for them? Several things: uh, jambalaya, uh, rice pudding, uh, several things actually. And there it was. So the process was that you know I had to work with uh, Houston, uh, NASA, and had to be sort of trained about what works because not everything works in space. You know, gravity and all that stuff. There's certain things that you have to take into consideration that works and does not work and then what they do and then what they do with it because it has to apply with water so right um very fascinating uh, i was fascinated with the challenge and and i'm i'm, I'm thrilled to, to have done it that's so cool 
Well, um, I feel like it's anticlimactic to ask our next lightning round question. But if you were not a chef and restaurateur and cookbook author and, and television personality, what do you think you'd be doing with your I'd life? I'd be a musician. Yeah, percussion? Yeah, I mean, there was a point when I was in um, junior high school, maybe, where I, um, because of my background growing up in music and being in a in a Portuguese band, actually, in a, in a like a real symphony band, I I there was a point that I used to write music. I used to write a lot of music, and um, not just so much lyrics, but actual music, like symphonic music. Yeah, and so I became the conductor at a very young age of the band. <laughs> I think the reason why I got recruited into culinary high school was because they needed someone for their band. <laughs> um, so, you were a ringer. Wow. Yeah, I was a ringer. That's so great. Yeah, so. That's amazing. Um, so you're by yourself in a car, you're on a road trip. Uh, what's the music that you're blasting and singing along to? It depends. You know, it depends where I am and depends the time of day. It's regional, yeah. Yes, it's regional. Like it here. could be rock, it could be country, it could be pop, it could be jazz. What it have you been jamming out to lately? Um, I sort of have this, uh, you know, I have a problem, actually. I, I, the problem is, is that I, I have this constant stuff of Billy Joel that's always kind of going in my head. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I, I think he's a, a, an incredible artist. He's a great human being. And I just, I love his music. And it doesn't matter if it's like my 12-year-old son or somebody that's 75 years old. There, there, there's a cross that yeah. that people relate to uh, as a real human being, you know, with Billy Joel. Have you yeah. ever met Billy Joel? Yes. Are you guys pals? Is he hanging out with you and Sammy Hagar tomorrow? Billy's not going to be there tomorrow. <laughs> not that I know of. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm I've had such the, a... I've had the pleasure of cooking for him for quite a few times. He seems like a pretty cool guy. He's a very cool guy. Yeah. Well, Emerald And Ar he's a great cook, by the way. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Really? Well, his his ex-wife is now culinarily famous, Katie Lee, formerly Katie Lee Joel. It's an appreciation for food there. He seems to have a whole lifestyle thing. Like he could have a lifestyle magazine. Really? Yeah. yeah, like, like he's he got could his do Hamptons. a goop. Like I would totally yeah. subscribe to his email newsletter. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, our last lightning round question is, what do you cook for dinner when you're at home on a weeknight and you got nothing going on? I cook most of the times at home, although my wife is a good cook, but she's like, why? Mm -hmm. So again, um, what what's going to inspire me today? So probably the first question, certainly question yes, Be, beside good morning, everyone, um, one of the first things for sure that we talk about in the morning is what what we're gonna what what we're gonna cook for dinner what what, what we're gonna have. So we're a family that uh, has a very well stocked pantry, just as I say in Essential Emerald. Teach people about that. We pretty much have the accoutrements around. We're bad. We we shop every day. We don't we don't do the big shopping I think thing. That's bad. I think that's good. Oh, I don't think it's bad. I just mean that people, when you say that, they look at you kind of strange. Like, you mean you didn't wait till Saturday and get the food buggy and load it up? <laughs> and spend and, $600 at right, Costco. And, and right. Like, yeah. So so it's really, again, seasonal. I'm also inspired by the weather. So the weather changes my style of, of what we're going to cook and how we're going to cook it based, based on the weather. 
Like I realized last night when I landed back, because it was very hot in Oregon this weekend, but the weather snapped here in New York. And so it reminded me last night when I landed that, wow, beside that, I got to find where my jacket is, right? (laughs) And my socks. It reminded me that, you know, the weather is getting ready to seriously change here now in New York. And so now that the, you know, that brazing is going to start, you know, coming back and that roasting and, you know, and not so much grilling, but, you know, those kind of words kind of change because of the weather. Braising is the sexiest food word, I think. I love braised braising. Uh, yeah. Braised foods are amazing. It's it's true, though. It's that time of the year. Yeah. Well, um, and you can braise a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be meat. You know, like what's your there's, favorite there's vegetable? A lot of great. Or? I just recently had some braised fennel. And I had some, um, a lot of braised vegetables recently. I was in Greece recently, so that was a... Well, they braise in olive oil in Greece a lot, too, which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, Emerald, thanks for coming by the Eater Upsell. Thank you. You can check out Essential Emerald available wherever books are sold. It's pretty rad. I'm a big fan of it. I think Greg is, too. Yeah, I can't wait to to check it out and start cooking. And braise. And braise. Totally braise. Braise forever. Thanks, Emerald. Thank you. On the next episode of the Eater Upsell, Helen and I will be joined in the studios by Jessica Koslow, the chef proprietor of Squirrel in LA. And basically the fairy godmother of avocado toast across America. Yeah. Like we would not have avocado toast without her. Or grain bowls. Or like anything. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell. And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening.